Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of con I'm Dan Malter, Chief Executive here and a proud member. And you're with a virtual City Club forum. Today is May 26th. Back in January, we presented a forum with George McCarthy of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy and Chantel Rush of the Kresge Foundation. It was the beginning of a series of conversations about equitable development. And we did that in celebration, and we're doing this series rather, in celebration of the Lincoln Institute's 75 years of making a difference and building stronger communities through better land use policy. Specifically, we've been looking at how you grapple with the unique challenges of legacy cities and how you meet those challenges with solutions that are inclusive and create access to economic opportunity for everyone, not just for real estate developers and the business community. So we continue this series today with a deeper look at a very specific roadmap that has been developed by the Lincoln Institute along with the Greater Ohio Policy Center. It's an evidence-based blueprint focusing on the role individuals and institutions can play in really creating equitable development. Dr. Allison Goebel is with us. She's CEO of the Greater Ohio Policy Center. You may have spotted her a moment ago. That's a Columbus-based nonprofit which works on revitalization and sustainable growth across the state of Ohio. She's also one of the co-authors of the report that I mentioned. It's called Equitably Developing America's Smaller Legacy Cities, Investing in Residents from South Bend to Worcester. That's Worcester, Mass., not Worcester, Ohio. We're also joined by Jay Williams. You may remember him as the former mayor of Youngstown, Ohio. He is now the CEO of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. The Hartford Foundation is uh, basically like the Cleveland Foundation for Hartford, Connecticut. In his current role, he leads the foundation's efforts to address disparities in the Hartford community based on race, ethnicity, place, and income in order to make opportunities more available to everyone. So we'll talk with them about the report, about what equitable, equitable development might mean to Cleveland and other surrounding cities and legacy cities across the country. So as in every City Club forum, we are relying on you and your curiosity to bring us some questions and be a part of this conversation. If you have questions, you should text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club and we will work them into the program. Dr. Allison Goble, Mayor Jay Williams, welcome to the program. Great to see Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so let's start with this question about what equitable development actually is. Dr. Goble, can you please like, I mean, I know you have a, a definition that is probably like tattooed on your forearm, but like, what is it? What is it exactly? Yeah, thanks. And thanks for the invitation. And thanks to Lincoln Institute for um, being such a great partner to Greater Ohio. Um, so we in the report talk about equity as being um, a goal that um, provides opportunity that is accessible to all regardless of background and circumstance that focuses on improving outcomes for low-income populations and communities of color to bring them into parity with white communities, basically. And so when we so we have this overarching goal or sort of definition of equity, when we're talking about equitable development, we are really focused on real estate in the report, um, but also what are the investments that we could be making into res making with and on behalf of residents to ensure that they are part of that process. And so um, for us, equitable development includes a lot of engagement, includes a lot of um, making sure that the table has um, seats placed for everyone and that everyone is given the space to provide their perspectives. So um, that sounds abstract. In the report, we're very concrete about what are the different strategies to accomplish that. And I should say, um, it's kind of fun talking about this report in Cleveland because we do 
profile a lot of Cleveland examples. And I will say this report's really for places that are more about saying to themselves, you know, we need to commit to equity and we just don't really know where to start. And Cleveland, you all are, you've been doing this for a while. You've been making those strides, but there's many places around Ohio and across the country that are just now trying to kind of get themselves organized. They're committed to the ideals, but they're not quite sure where to start. And so this report is really for those places and giving some very um, concrete kind of first steps that they can take. It's really interesting that you say that Cleveland is, um, you know, kind of used as a model and an example because I think a lot of people who work in economic development, community development, in Cleveland would not see themselves see themselves as striving towards that, but not necessarily as having figured it out or created the equitable development that they really want to see. Mayor Williams, um, and I'm going to keep calling you Mayor Williams. So, um, and that's just the honorific that you earned. 2005 to 2011 in Youngstown, Ohio. But um, now in Hartford, when you are talking about uh, equitable economic development, equitable development throughout the city of Hartford, what does that look like specifically to you? Well, thank you again for the invitation. Great to be here with Dr. Goebel. And it was just, uh, you know, entertaining to me to see a familiar 330 area code as you gave the number to text as I maintain my, my home phone number for the many years that I've been away. But I completely agree with Dr. Goble when she talks about uh, how she defined equitable development. And that's also how we look at it here in the greater Hartford region. And Hartford, while not in Ohio, uh, is a legacy city. And, and for those of uh, who appreciate history, the Connecticut Western Reserve, you're reached into uh, Northeast Ohio, into the Cleveland area. So there is a historic connection here. Uh, I would simply enhance or add to uh, Dr. Goble's definition that Equitable development uh, does not mean identical, uh, and it also has to be intentional. And I say that because when you talk about the structural disparities and inequities and the segregation and the exclusion that has occurred over the history of this country, it was very purposeful. It was very conscientious. It was very intentional. So when we talk about trying to repair the breach and try to create equitable approaches, we have to also be equally intentional and understand that equitable and identical aren't synonymous in this regard because the communities that have been disinvested in, the communities that have suffered the, the disproportional effects of the inequities and disparities have to also be invested in and have policies that acknowledge and address uh, the systemic legacy of deficiencies that have been created by this. So it does absolutely uh, provide an opportunity for uh, all communities to benefit it provides for, uh, as Dr. Goble said, everyone to have a seat at the table and not just have a seat at the table, but to have their voice heard, recognized, and valued in a way that the outcomes lend themselves to over time. And that's the other thing that this equity uh, that we are seeking is incremental, is going to require time and patience and commitment, but it is absolutely not just aspirational. I believe it's achievable, but it has to occur in the confines or in the context uh, of being intentional, understanding that equitably and identically investing in, in these policies uh, aren't synonymous and have to take into the account uh, the, the the still today lingering effects that communities like Cleveland, like Youngstown, like Hartford, like Worcester Mass, like so many others, as, as Dr. Goble talked about, uh, you can just run off a list of, of legacy cities that would benefit significantly uh, from the principles, the approaches and the practices uh, that are articulated in the uh, in the publication uh, that has uh, been spoken of. 
So, Mayor Williams, when you say, uh, just to put a finer point on it, when you say it doesn't mean identical, it means it's the, there can be different levels of investment. I mean, I think what you're specifically saying is that you might have one neighborhood that receives a $10 million investment um, and another neighborhood that has been historically a disinvest, a neighborhood that has di received disinvestment um, and needs a lot further to go. And that neighborhood might require a, a $50 million, $100 million investment to bring it up to par with that other first neighborhood. That's exactly what it means. And also when you think of policies, policies, uh, so the hard physical financial investment is, is, is one aspect of that, but also policies that recognize the differences between those neighborhoods and the, the compounding effects. And that's the other thing. This has occurred for so many decades that there's mm -hmm. a, just like interest compounds when you put your mm -hmm. money away, uh, mm -hmm. the, the deleterious effects compound and are exacerbated. So recognizing that policies have to make that differentiation and that's where it becomes difficult because you know people want to say, well, here's a policy that is a policy for all and it provides that equitable development. So while it is well-intended, if it doesn't have those nuances and acknowledgements of, of the his, history that we just talked about, it really is inequitable. It can be um, well-intended, but the impacts and the outcomes will not ultimately put us on a path that I think uh, is very well articulated uh, in, the, uh, in the work that Dr. Goble has, has, has championed. Dr. Goble, there's a, a line in the report that really jumped out at me. You wrote, um, as one of the three co-authors of this report, you wrote, an equity agenda cannot be built entirely on a city's real estate market. Wh why did you, what, what did you mean by that? Yeah, that's a great question. And Mayor Williams is so right. Um, and we profile a number of cases where of cities that have sort of tailored solutions to different neighborhoods, right, to to ensure that that parity is achieved by making sure that different supports, policies, and, and financials are available. So to the real estate question, um, so we as a... Um, a group focused on revitalization around the state, we are often involved in conversations and concerns around gentrification. And, and that's a very real concern, um, you know, and I don't want to diminish um, people's fears of displacement, cultural or physical. Uh, what we see though, is that um, sort of the flashy solutions that come out of strong markets, right? Inclusionary zoning, um, uh, developer extractions, those don't always work in small legacy cities. And I do want to- What is a developer extraction? So, or exaction, anyway, the point is like saying like, we're gonna, if you wanna develop, we're gonna require you to put in, um, you know, 20% of the units you're going to build need to be available to um, income limited people, right? People who are making less than 60%. Or we need, if you were going to build here, you need to make a contribution to a housing trust fund and X amount of dollars, right? On some sort of formulaic basis. And um, what we see in smaller legacy cities, and when I say smaller legacy cities in the report, we're talking about places that have 30,000 people to 200,000 people today and have mm -hmm. lost population over time, right? So they probably had more at some point. Um, those places just have very fragile real estate markets, right? And so to think that equity, however defined, is going to be achieved solely through um, real estate development is hard to imagine in a place like Lorraine or Leary or Mansfield. As much as I love those places, they they just, you know, like the scale is not achievable and those real estate markets are so fragile already to assume that only real estate is going to do that through potentially inclusionary zoning or these other methods, that seems like for us, not the best use of leaders and advocates 
energies, right? Like we think that you can achieve more equitable outcomes by focusing on other solutions, whether that's tenant protections, whether that's um, rental assistance, whether that's ensuring the folks are at the table so that neighborhood planning is deliberative and inclusive in the future. Those seem to us like better uses in some cases, not all cases, right? Mm -hmm. But are often better cases than sort of what is a very visible and flashy and you know, has gotten a lot of attention, particularly on and in coastal stronger markets, on ways to address um, these disparities. Because essentially, in the end, the the Lorraines and Illyrias and Mansfields and Youngstowns, they need investment no matter what. And if you put those those constraints, that may that may scare investors and developers. Yeah, it's going to dampen any development interest if you have to in a already tough development context, adding more. Um, from a developer's perspective, hoops mm -hmm. to jump or hurdles, right. And mm -hmm. again, I, this is not to diminish the end goals, but I think maintaining a view of what are we trying to accomplish and that there's multiple routes to get there. And that's, I think, one thing that we try to do in this report. I also want to say I'm the secondary author on this report. The first primary author was unavailable today, Erica Spade-Patris. But the point is that we are trying to outline a number of different routes to uh -huh. achieve equitable outcomes real estate being one one route but not mm -hmm. not the primary way let's let's talk about some of the recommendations in the report you say that uh, top among them is building trust and I, I want to ask you to describe that mayor Williams I want to ask you to also describe kind of how that helped or where it was lacking how it hindered how the lack of it hindered things you were trying to do in Youngstown but dr Goble you first what do we, yeah. why, why is the trust so important it's sort of intuitive but I also want to hear you discuss it well, that's the thing. So, so much um, research and writing about legacy revitalization, even work that we've produced out of this office over the years, sort of just takes for granted that everyone's going to be playing well together, that everyone um, in a community is aligned around shared goals and visions. And the reality is, is that that's not the case in many communities, large, medium, or small, but particularly smaller legacy cities that have been so left behind and have just really been on the short end of so many different policy sticks. There is, um, we are fine in some communities, there's just a need to really focus on trust building before you do anything else, right? Because if there is um, mistrust, if there is skepticism, if there is, um, if you're not sure that that partner is with you 110%, then nothing really happens in these places or it becomes extremely siloed and duplicative, which is not a good use of resources. So yeah, the very first recommendation we make is how to basically repair strained relationships and build trust and um, again, provide very concrete examples of how other communities have done this. Do you wanna talk about a couple of those right now? So, um, Sure. So in um, in one community, uh, they, there were leaders from philanthropy, um, the nonprofit sector and local government who and private sector. So like the Chamber of Commerce, who um, didn't really hang out much together, didn't talk to each other. And so they brought in a third party facilitator to really just kind of like do some basic meeting, like 101, like get to know each other, sort of facilitated meet and greets. Um, but through that process, the um, one of the partners we were working with was very deliberate and out and using actually a, a worksheet that we include in the report on sort of identifying where she thought there might be opportunities to connect with partners as she was hearing sort of maybe not for the first time, but in a, in a more neutral zone, 
what are ways that, you know, what are our interests that she might share with the Chamber of Commerce or that the another foundation might share with her. And so from there, um, she started to build what we call micro partnerships, right? And that that was the way that um, that when COVID came, they were the community was able to move very quickly in providing response funds and kind of a response coordinated response um, uh, response because they had that some of this kind of just like early kind of conversations like let's get coffee let's not come in with a clear agenda but just like let's get to know each other mm-hmm. all of that paid dividends when the crisis hit. For sure. Uh, Let me just say, uh, before we get to you, Mayor Williams, I wanted to remind our our audience that if you have a question, you should text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club and we will work it into the program. If you just tweet it at me, there's a chance I might catch it, but the likelihood is that I will miss it. Jay Williams, uh, listening to Dr. Goble talk, I was reminded of our mutual friend, Chris Thompson's uh, advice. I think you remember Chris from the Fund for Economic Future and back in those days. And he would always say, somebody needs to buy the donuts. Somebody needs to buy the donuts. And and let me give you a perfect example of why trust is so important. Um, When the steel mills and the steel industry began to falter, uh, really in the in the in the early to mid 60s and it manifested itself most visibly in the in the 70s and September 19th 1977 people will tell you where they were what they were having for breakfast when Youngstown sheet and tube announced its closure uh, of its of its Campbell works in, in Youngstown Ohio and tens of thousands of jobs were lost why trust was so important because from that date the city of Youngstown the greater Mahoning Valley community was sold a bill of goods, time and time again about how the next big idea is going to come in and bring back the jobs, the economic vibrancy, and all the things that the community had lost uh, and that were so much defined by the steel mills. And I remember some of these vividly growing up in Youngstown. Some I do and some I don't, but uh, there was a point after which the steel mills collapsed where uh, an idea was put forward that they were going to build dirigibles, blimps, helium-filled blimps, at the Youngstown Municipal Airport. And this was going to be the next best thing to, to bring the economy back from the brink. And, and I, I would say tongue in cheek, this was after the Hinden, this was years after the Hindenburg disaster. Somehow the community got uh, the notion and got excited about the fact that they were going to build dirigibles at the Youngstown Municipal Airport. I remember as a teenager that uh, then uh, Governor Bill Clinton and, and Al Gore came uh, to the Southern Park Mall parking lot and promised that if he was elected, it was going to be a defense finance accounting center, DFAS, was going to be built in downtown Youngstown and was going to create thousands of jobs, high paying government jobs that would really be a boon to the economy. So as you can imagine, the blimps were never built. And as you can imagine, Clinton was elected and the DFAS center uh, didn't come to, to, to Youngstown. It, it did end up somewhere in Cleveland and no, no taking nothing away from Cleveland. Uh, and there were several of those things that over the course of a decade or so, the trust eroded, uh, the the cynicism increased uh, in that vacuum that was created, a whole host of things that were detrimental to the community. So it wasn't until we had a cathartic, honest conversation about what Youngstown was and wasn't going to be, about what it could achieve on a much smaller, uh, more realistic, manageable scale, that the community began to rebuild that trust that allowed us to engage uh, in the planning effort that was Youngstown 2010. And even then, there was a, a caution not to oversell Youngstown 2010 as a utopia 
that was going to put the city back into quote unquote its glory days, but instead it required uh, really going through a psychological and emotional process that the community had to go through to begin rebuilding that trust and then buying into the notion of how you would invest in a city like Youngstown in a community like the Mahoney Valley. And it was at that point we started seeing some successes. And I'll end by saying one of the areas I, I completely agree again with Dr. Goble in terms of real estate not being the only uh, or the primary mechanism in these cities with very fragile uh, real estate, but where Youngstown did excel uh, was with its ability to capture and redirect investment into some of those former manufacturing sites. So while it wasn't the traditional uh, real estate that you might see in a downtown or some of the larger cities, Youngstown did prosper uh, by being able to have a directed, targeted, uh, and very thoughtful investment into some of those sites that ultimately helped to rebuild uh, the tax base that had eroded over the course of, of so many decades. You were requiring a lot of trust of the community at the time, too, because you were saying, we're going to get smaller. The glory days are not coming back. And that was a big ask of your community. It, it was. And it required, uh, you know, the community buy into this notion that, you know, no candidate for mayor, no mayor would say, hey, we're going to be smaller is better. You know, yeah. when, you of, when you think, oh, we got to be 50,000. So we're an entitlement city at HUD. Mm -hmm. We've got to be 100,000. So we we can be in sort of the, the big city club. This mm -hmm. notion of accepting that we were smaller to me, we had seen and been promised the exact opposite and only became more frustrated, only became more cynical. So, you know, to say, hey, you know, we have assets that we can build on. We have assets because Youngstown was at one point 180,000 was designed to accommodate a quarter of a million. We've got lots of assets that are remnants from the days when we had 180,000 that cities that were only 50 or 60,000 might never have architectural, cultural, uh, natural resources. So let's take those resources and build on them and use them as the catalyst to, to be a smaller, better city. And again, it still had its flaws, but people began to buy into that notion, take ownership of their role in that much more than sort of sitting back waiting for the federal government to write a check or this brilliant mm -hmm. business person to come in and say, here's the, here's the panacea, uh, mm -hmm. you know, for, for, for Youngstown's ills. You know, I want to remind folks that the, the report is called Equitably Developing America's Smaller Legacy Cities. You can find it on the webpage for this event at cityclub.org or on the Lincoln Institute of Land Policies website at lincolninst.edu. Just click on publications. And while you're there as well, you can also register for an upcoming webinar. It's June 29th, where practitioners who are part of, I think some, some of whom have been a focus of the Greater Ohio's uh, Policy Center's report, will discuss how they've implemented some of the strategies we're talking about. And I want to move on to another strategy, Allison Goebel, um, specifically, and I don't know that we're going to get to all of them because I think you got about seven or eight that, that are really key, but um, building a layered and diverse coalition for this. Like this is not the work of one entity or, or you know, or one office inside of City Hall. Talk a little bit about what those coalitions look like and how you build them. Yeah. So first, I want to just rewind very quickly to trust, but it's going to connect to this coalition question, which is sure. that, um, so we are really impressed by what happened in Lancaster, Pennsylvania a few years ago, where city staff said, you know what, the ex exclusionary policies, the redlining that has come out of our offices have led to the conditions of the neighborhoods that they are today. 
and we take ownership of that. And they, the city and staff issued a public apology that said, you know, we acknowledge that the city messed up and that we are responsible for this and that it is our responsibility to fix this. And we are looking to you to help guide what is the right solutions, right? And that public apology, I mean, what um, Mayor Williams was saying was cathartic, right? And that mm -hmm. it really started to help build that trust. So in terms of the, the coalition building, what we see in places like Lancaster, uh, Indianapolis, other places, is that that when there is very deliberate decision to say we need to get a lot of different diverse voices who have a stake in whatever the policy may be or the issue is that there is um, just better policy making in general right so in indianapolis uh, this is probably a very familiar case to clevelanders but um, a few years ago indianapolis said we are going to expand our transit system and we're going to build brt like the the health line and we are going to expand it everywhere and the way that and there's a lot of kind of state and local policy hoops they had to jump they brought in grassroots folks they brought in the business sector they brought in philanthropy and nobody was super like nobody no one person or one entity was really in charge of the effort right that they had the grassroots folks and like the ministers from black neighborhoods co-equally leading this coalition and sort of the decisions they were making and the vision of the of the map that they wanted to see for service co-equal with the chamber of commerce right and so like this is where basically you have alignment across the across the city or across the community from all sectors basically saying like we have a shared vision and we are all going to contribute our unique expertise and skills and rolodexes to achieving that mm -hmm. it seems to me though that you really do need to focus people's attention on a specific problem. Because if you bring people together and say, let's try and fix it all. We tried to do this a couple of years ago with uh, an effort called Cleveland Rising. And like, there was all this great, like there was a lot of trust built and there was a lot of ideation and a lot of, uh, a lot of people were felt, I, I think, empowered to make a difference, but it was, it was a little ethereal in the end. You know, and and I mean, a lot of the work isn't over and there's still work continuing. But but there was this feeling like it lacked focus um, because there were it's, you know, boiling the ocean, yada, yada, all of that sort of thing. Totally. Um, totally. Jay, I mean, oh, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. Well, yeah. I was going to say what we see in other in communities, particularly smaller legacy cities, which like maybe are just kind of getting over whatever the personal beefs that might exist between leaders or whatever. Right. Like starting small, kind of working out that muscle and then building up to bigger and bigger wins, right? Like that sort of the incremental gains that Mayor Williams was talking about, that's where we really see. So, but you're right, Dan, the key point is like, what is the problem we're gonna fix today? What is the problem we're gonna fix tomorrow? Was, you know, and like, instead of boiling the ocean. Mm -hmm. and, and it is important, and, and that was, when you mentioned Cleveland, it is important to have a vision that excites and galvanizes people and gets them sort of thinking differently about the future of their community, but you're both right, it is then, equally important, if not more, to have an incremental approach and plan. So, oh, the Cleveland rising vision gets people excited and, and we're all ready to go. What are the steps that we're going to take? And then those successes breed additional confidence for more successes. And the more you do that, there does become a set of decisions that are very ambitious, very difficult. But if you've got those early wins, it then mm -hmm. begins to build the confidence. Hey, we, we can do this. Mm -hmm. We demonstrated that we can set aside the as Dr. Goebel said, the, the differences that have existed politically or ideologically, uh, we can we can you know move forward together in a way that at the end of the day, ultimately, 
after the, you know, a series of wins and, and, and the course of time, you find that that, that vision that was talked about uh, is actually come into fruition. And I, and I think, you know, to Cleveland's credit, a lot of that has transpired. When I was in D.C., uh, you know, the perception that people had of the Midwest as flyover country, the perception that people had of Cleveland uh, was the, you know, the, the Cuyahoga River fire. Um, and I really got a kick out of the fact that uh, on a number of occasions, uh, my travels took me to Cleveland and some of my colleagues would come. And when they saw Cleveland, and this was Cleveland as it existed, uh, you know, during the Obama administration, uh, when they saw the Cleveland that had the investments in, uh, you know, the medical technology, when they saw the Cleveland that was, uh, had embraced and began to really embrace the natural resources of Lake Erie and so many other things, it was awe-inspiring. I mean, just to really see that this is what happens when a community begins to incrementally envision a future and then move toward it. And, and again, I'm sure progress has been made. It's been probably a year or so since I've been to the city, but progress has been even uh, furthered since then. Uh, and I do believe that places like Cleveland do ser serve as a model. You're welcome back anytime, Mayor Williams. Um, absolutely. The um, So just to, to close that part out, I mean, when we're talking about a layered and diverse coalition. We're talking about sort of grass tops to grassroots and across the community as well. Um, another area, we're going to get to audience questions in a second, but another area that you uh, talk about is recalibrating existing operations to yield equity. Dr. Goble, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so we end the report um, providing examples of different entities, whether local governments or nonprofits, um, who have said we are committing to an equity agenda and we are going to take steps to do that. So, um, you know, I think a lot of organizations, ours is included at Great Ohio, are re-examining the vendors and contractors we use and trying to make a deliberate effort to hire minority-owned, women-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses. Um, but we also talk about um, a great tool that exists um, from a, a group called GAR that um, will come into a city and help you basically do a racial equity audit. Uh, we talk about um, actually a, a affordable housing lender here that's based in Columbus, who now requires all of their borrowers to provide a, a living wage to make a good faith effort to hire minority contractors. And to um, uh, they also say that the, that the um, developments that their borrowers are building must not discriminate based on source of income, right? So these are very, and this is written into a, basically a memorandum of understanding that they establish with the borrowers. So, Cleveland Development Advisors is doing very similar work with um, their borrowers. And so when we talk about recalibrating operations, it's both certainly internal, right? Like you gotta get your own house in order, but then also what are the influence and levers that you as an organization can pull with the other partners or clients or borrowers that you're working with to help them kind of move in um, in shared, uh, you know, shared goals around equity. So um, those are just a few examples that we talk about, but that's, um, you know, all of this sort of, is a little bit kind of window dressing, maybe not window dressing, but you know, a lot of this is like, we got to look internal to our organizations and how we operate if we're going to be very serious about this. Dan, if I could just add to that. That's, Please do, Mayor. She, she's explained, Dr. Goble has explained exactly what's happening here uh, in Hartford. So the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving is the largest community foundation in the state of Connecticut. And, and again, one of the 20 largest in the country, uh, along with places like the Cleveland Foundation. And internally, we are going through our own internal journey and, and have been for the past year plus, year and a half or so, uh, about recalibrating uh, the things that, that Dr. Goble talked about, our own relationship with our vendors, our relationships 
uh, with our, our stakeholders and partners, uh, and certainly with respect to our grant making, committing and centering ourselves on an equity agenda and, and talking about it in the notion of uh, committing ourselves to participate in the dismantling of structural racism and increasing social and economic mobility in communities of color. And it is not a, an easy process to go through, but it recognizes that most community foundations, if you think about, you know, the oldest community foundation in the country is, is, is the Cleveland Foundation. And you think about these large wealthy community foundations, the wealth was amassed in a time where there was, uh, you know, engendered discrimination, uh, racial and ethnic discrimination, uh, discrimination against women and, and a whole host of minority groups. So uh, this wealth was amassed in a time where uh, there was not equal opportunity to amass wealth or, or, or to, 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 to have access to capital. So taking a, a, an appreciation of the historic origins that we have, but also now going through that process of being introspective and humble uh, about how we uh, commit ourselves and center ourselves to an equitable agenda. And uh, like the Cleveland Rising, we also are working with a number of other stakeholders here in the Greater Hartford region uh, in an initiative that has been dubbed Hartford 400 that is taking what may be a once in a lifetime opportunity, at least in our lifetime, to uh, understand and appreciate the, the ARPA funding that is coming in as a result of the COVID pandemic and how we have a chance to undo uh, and rethink some of those past policies that were so inequitable, uh, that were so discriminatory uh, as we think about the path forward. Uh, coincidentally, as, as the city of Hartford prepares to celebrate its 400th anniversary uh, in, in about eight to 10 years, that, that's a part of how we're setting ourselves and going through the process that Dr. Goble talked about. That's a really significant point that you raised, Mayor Williams, in, in that, um, you know, both the, the, his, the, the historical underpinnings of our kind of philanthropic ecosystem and the problematic nature of all of that, um, which we've talked about at the City Club before, Edgar Villanueva spoke on it, and as well as Anand uh, Girdardis, but, um, but also this, this incredible opportunity that cities around the nation, particularly the most poor cities around the nation, inside of Cuyahoga County, I, mean, I think we're expected to receive a total. If you add it all up, it's going to be over a billion dollars coming into Cuyahoga County through the um, through this federal stimulus, uh, this federal stimulus investment, and it really does represent a, a generational opportunity to eliminate eliminate systemic poverty and um, and and to implement some of these things that we've been talking about. So if you're interested, you should check out the report, Equitably Developing America's Smaller Legacy Cities. You can find it on the Lincoln Institute's website. You can find it on our website, cityclub.org. Um, and you're also encouraged to sign up for that webinar I mentioned earlier as well uh, that the Lincoln Institute will be hosting. We're talking with Allison Goebel. She is uh, the executive director, president and CEO of the Greater Ohio Policy Center. And Jay Williams, former mayor of Youngstown, former assistant secretary of commerce for economic development in the Obama White House and currently the president and CEO of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, um, which I only remember because it's right above his right shoulder. Um, if you have questions, please text them to 330-541-5794 or tweet them at the City Club and we'll work them into the program. Um, we're delighted to have a few questions here right now. Um, no legacy city is an island. All are surrounded by suburban neighbors. Is there a role for regional strategies to address social and economic disparities in these places? And if so, 
What could those look like? What are the best practices here? Mayor Williams, let's start with you. Not only is there a role for regional strategies, and regional strategies and acknowledgement of, of the city's role in the region is essential. And it, without that, I think that these things are doomed to fail. They will live uh, a, a life for a period of time because cities, the borders are porous. Uh, the economics, the investment, uh, the, the, whether people believe it or not, the elements of crime and things that plague a city aren't confined artificially to, to those lines on a map. They are often concentrated in the city, but part of that sometimes is sometimes it's benign neglect and sometimes it is intentional conscious neglect. Mm -hmm. So uh, the regional view and the regional understanding is essential. I fought for that uh, as mayor of Youngstown. I'm sure to the to the dismay and disdain of sometimes some of our regional uh, 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 my regional colleagues. But I've never found anyone who could undercut the argument that a stronger Youngstown was a stronger boardman. A stronger mm -hmm. Youngstown was a stronger Canfield and Austintown. There's nothing positive that could happen in the central city that didn't have a ripple beneficial effect to the outlying regions. But the exact opposite is true. The challenges and struggles of Youngstown would overshadow the rest of Mahoney Valley, no matter how quaint and how charming some of those other, and I don't mean that uh, pejoratively or sarcastically, but how, how much those other suburbs love the quality of life it was always connected at somehow and at some point to Youngstown. And the same thing I'm sure holds true for, for Cleveland and its surrounding suburbs, Hartford and its surrounding suburbs. So yeah, a regional strategy, while much more difficult, while politically fraught has to be, and it's not that you have to wait for that to materialize before you begin the core city, but you can't just say, we're going to have the core city issues and somehow the region will take care of itself. And Dr. Goble, the, the, the regional strategy becomes all the more important when in the context of of a lack of population growth, because I mean, I, I'm sitting here, you know, just in a, in, a, in a suburb of Cleveland where, you know, like downtown when when the malls and the and the and the transportation policy kind of push people out to the suburbs, the, the retail grew in the suburbs and the retail is almost non-existent, continues to be close to non-existent downtown. Yeah, so um, we at Greater Ohio have done work not contained in this report, but in other reports um, that show that declining center cities are leading to declining regional metros. Um, that's actually very apparent in the Dayton region, um, mm -hmm. but also other places around the state. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's definitely a regional, um, there's a need for a regional solution, right? I will say in our report, we say, just focus on your own community first, yeah. right? Because it is so hard to do the regional, right? And that yeah. like, that you can scale up these solutions. But I mean, that's the other thing too, is that we were really clear in this report is that our solutions here, like you can start them at any time and you can just get going, right? And the regional stuff, you just gotta, that's just like another layer of part of people, right? <laughs> that so, mm -hmm. um, so there's no doubt that a regional solution is really important. I love the work that the Fund for Economic Future does. I love the work that um, other regional partners are doing in Northeast Ohio and, and their kind of equivalents around the state. But um, so I'm not dismissing the the fact that we need to have regional solutions. They're just really hard, right? So it's sort of like how what's like a little bit of get your own house in order type of thing, right? And bring others sure. along through those successes. And, and by doing that, by having success in the central city, it helps to engender some of the conversations because people want to be around winners. People want to be around things that are seem successful. So 
if you start with, oh, the problems in the core city, you got to help us fix it. She's absolutely right. But if you start getting your house in order, mm -hmm. they, they are connect, those, those surrounding communities are connected to the core city in ways they, in, in more ways they can even imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, but by engendering and starting there, I absolutely agree that it makes it a little bit more palatable when you start then talking about let's build on this success that happened in the core city and talk about how this also benefits the, the region. You know, I want to um, keep with this regional, the, a bit of this regional conversation for a second, because it, it is part of the broader context in which the, this work happens, no matter what. Um, and this question's from Eric Wobser, who I think both of you know, the currently city manager in Sandusky. He writes, as a, as a city manager of a legacy city, how can we expand the conversation around equity to a regional level when so much inequity in small legacy regions is a direct result of middle class residents with mobility fleeing legacy cities? while continuing to benefit from being part of the legacy city's labor market, cultural amenities, and more. I think you sort of hit the nail on the head there, Mayor Williams. I, again, therein lies the million dollar question because the legacy city still provides significant benefit to the region. When you talk about the employment centers, uh, the cultural institutions, oftentimes the educational institutions, and because it is has been so easy for so long to uh, derive the benefits from the legacy city without having to bear the full cost or make the fair contributions. Um, I think that's where uh, this investment that you talked about that is probably once in a generation, acknowledging and making sure that the investment directed to these legacy cities is thoughtfully deployed to, you know, part of, part of it is the carrot uh, to, to try to attract some of the, the conversation. I also believe at times you have to use a stick. I, I oftentimes lamented the fact that in Ohio, uh, you know, we would subsidize uh, the expansion of of the infrastructure at the expense of the cities. That the developers could develop green fields and farmland uh, with state subsidies uh, that did not acknowledge the fact that that was happening uh, and exacerbating the decline from some of our central cities. So I had no problem with suburban or exurban development. I have a problem with it being subsidized or coming at the expense or exacerbating the issues uh, in, in, in our core cities. It sort of, I mean, it becomes very obvious when you think about those amenities, whether it's Sandusky and the, and the kind of lakefront amenities that people in surrounding communities are enjoying right there in Sandusky or in Youngstown where, you know, like Boardman High School is a great place to go to high school because it's a pipeline to Youngstown State, right? right? If Youngstown is like, it fails, and Youngstown State is on the chopping block, that, that relationship no longer works. Dr. Goble, anything to add on that? Just that we've seen in other uh, regions, I'm thinking of Indianapolis and Syracuse actually, that have used a lot of data. And frankly, private sector has led those conversations and has said like, look, this is a priority to us to take a regional approach to solutions, equitable solutions. So um, just wanted to raise those two, and we provide longer profiles of those in the report, but like the data piece and also who the messenger is, is really important sometimes to elevating this to a serious regional conversation. Mm -hmm. She's absolutely right. I, it wasn't lost on me that as the mayor of Youngstown, my message to the suburban communities seemed self-serving. I got that. So to the extent that uh, regional players like, in our instance, Youngstown State University or the corporate community, and that's where Hartford is benefiting from still having a significant corporate community mm -hmm. who when lend their voice to this carries a lot heavier weight and, and less politically uh, tagged than, than a elected official. Another question, so often revitalization and development is focused on new hot neighborhoods, 
previous previously hot neighborhoods are then discarded and often the investment they previously enjoyed are diverted to the new neighborhood. Um, how can we create sustainable revitalization rather than just moving investment and resources around hot, so-called hot neighborhoods? Dr. Goebel. Um, that's a good question. I mean, so one of the things we talk about in our report is the value of planning, right? Which like, I think probably everyone on this um, webinar is going to agree with, but anyway, we do talk about the, the value of planning and also the value of anticipating neighborhood change, right? And so being proactive so that um, change that's negative is mitigated, but also benefits are retained. So mm -hmm. um, it is hard, you know, the private market's gonna do what the private market does, but there are lots of ways that um, the city through the benefits that they provide to developers um, uh, can help sort of steer, but, the, but there's also, um, you know, the nonprofits and local leaders are also in a position to kind of help keep that stickiness in the neighborhood that might soon to be discarded for the next hot thing. So um, again, it's sort of everyone's responsibility to find solutions and contribute the unique expertise or um, skills that they can to, the, to these longer, you know, larger goals. I, I think the other thing is important here is recognizing that most cities of this size, most cities aren't made of a, of a, a bunch of hot neighborhoods. Well, that too. Are, That's why you kind of paused. I was like, <laughs> yeah, it's great and it's fun and it's sexy to have a couple of hot neighborhoods. But if you get a city that by and large has mitigated some of its deteriorating struggle neighborhoods, brought them to some sense of stability, uh, has a core of stable neighborhoods, and then you sprinkle in a few hot neighborhoods. So, so that's the thing is cities themselves have to recognize while it's, it's tempting to chase the hot neighborhood, it is more lasting and of greater value to have stable, solid neighborhoods that may not be the cutting edge place where people are trying to go, but they're not the places where working middle-class families feel they have to flee. So this is, this is what the CDC community, the Community Development Corporation community uh, will of practice refers to as the middle neighborhoods, right? right. Yeah. They, they may be boring. They may be like boring. Oh, they've got people. They're who just residential boring. neighborhoods where like coffee. kids can ride their bikes. Yeah. You got to place a couple coffee shops. It's not where the, the next, tech wizard is going to come and invest $10 million, but that that's okay. I mean, I would also say smaller legacy cities, they need strong downtowns. So if downtown right. is hot, like yeah. that's not a problem actually. Absolutely. Right. And, and it's likely that nobody's really living in downtown or if they are, it's probably deplorable conditions. Right. And like, buildings that haven't been touched in years. So, you know, by the, by the owner. So like, so downtown redevelopment is not a bad thing in these places like Mansfield, Elyria, mm -hmm. Akron, you know? So uh, yeah, Mayor Williams, I totally agree. I was like, wait, these places don't really have hot neighborhoods that are like <laughs> bouncing around. <laughs> but, but, and, and I used to say, I used to chuckle, you can create all these life. You can take a farm out in the suburb and create this, these, this lifestyle communities. I was like, guess what? They're called downtowns or they're called downtowns 50 years ago. And you yeah. can't recreate the iconic skyscrapers and you can't recreate the neoclassical architecture uh, in these downtowns. So when you are able to re renew them, uh, then they do become, and that is where, uh, you know, for, for, you know, 40 years, nobody lived in downtown Youngstown virtually. And then over the past 15 years, downtown Youngstown all of a sudden became the hot real estate market. Yeah. It's funny. I'm like thinking about the way that, that, Develop residential development has like sort of shifted over the decades, and there was a moment in the mid '90s when um, the Disney Corporation created a place called Celebration Florida. Yep. 
<laughs> and it was such a and it was such a shift, right? Because it was like this corporation was going to like create this place that was going to be all American in some fashion, right? And use this like quintessentially American architecture. And it was just you was just you know you kind of put up your hands and you think like, well, why not just like actually invest in these in these places? Or Toledo or Youngstown or right. Brunswick. I mean, like we've got a bunch of these places across the country. Yeah. It was um, it was very like, but but I think that sort of you know, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't. I hesitate to call it like the Floridification or the Disneyfication of residential development. Um, but it, but that that has just sort of happened over and over and over again um, throughout our throughout the recent history of of you know of community development. And it's and, old is new again. You know, yeah, fascinated to 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 recycle what what has already been uh, treaded. So here's but like this question. is the competitive advantage of these places, right? Like they already right. are walkable. They already have this awesome architecture. You know, like they're you have single family homes that are affordable, right? Their, so their like authenticity we isn't in finger quotes. Right. Yeah, right, right. So, I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, frankly, this remote working situation we're in, like, it presents yeah. a huge, I mean, we're all talking about it, but, like, legit, it's a real opportunity for these smaller legacy cities, as long as they can get broadband access. So we need to make sure the feds and states are providing that's, broadband access. That's a, That's another another topic. A another very topic. topic connected to, yeah. you know, this long thread of conversations we have at the City Club. This question via Twitter uh, sent, to, uh, sent to us at the City Club. Would love to hear uh, Mayor Williams and Dr. Goble offer perspective on what seems to be the need for a pivot from participation, i.e. seats at the table, to voice and true agency, i.e. a shared table, and on strategy for how to transition that can be achieved to gain a more just future. Dr. Goble. Yeah, that's a great question. And a lot of partners, I mean, a lot of communities around the country are trying to struggle with this. Um, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the community I mentioned that issued that public apology from the, the city itself, um, they are doing this, we think, pretty well. And um, so they've created actually a citywide CDC that is called Lancaster Equity CDC, which is really focused on trying to ensure that there is um, that shared table, right? So it's not just like the seat, but the actual the sharing of the table. And one way that they started that process was by investing heavily in community organizers, like people who are outdoor knocking and saying, we are here because we want to hear things that you have been thinking about that you have not had an outlet to share it in. And we are going to take this and we are going to then organize conversations and we are going to create the environment so that you have that voice and that we are creating that space and making sure that the right ears are listening. And so, um, you know, that the work there has been a lot of just block and tackle with individual community organizers and it's not happening overnight, but that commitment and even just kind of creating an entity that is charged with this and that is, um, that requires and expects respect from all the other nonprofit and philanthropic and public and private sector partners in the city has really started to um, shift just the dynamics in really positive ways. So Lancaster Equity um, and the work that they're doing there in Pennsylvania, we think is a really great example of how that can actually be done. We, we are attempting to do that same thing uh, in, as a community foundation, as a funder, is to uh, share uh, the space, share the power, not just from the grantor-grantee relationship, which has somewhat of a paternal dynamic to it, but instead um, invest in ways that we're looking at many of these um, uh, partners and peers uh, negotiating and having a conversation with them, 
uh, and having them share with us their aspirations and, and the expectations they have of us and the expectations they have of their ability to move the needle in this community. So again, it's a humbling process, particularly when you think of the, the platform that wealthy community foundations typically sit as, you know, lording over, and I use that term gingerly or broadly, lording over the community with, with all their wealth and spreading that wealth through through their grant making process, as opposed to saying, listen, we need to share this power. We need to share our space uh, in a way uh, that may cause us to rethink or to hear some things about ourselves uh, that while we were perhaps well-intended, that was not ultimately uh, the space that we're in. So I, I completely agree that it is a, a necessary ongoing process of institutions that have historically been rooted in power uh, to, to make sure that um, recognizing the agency, you can't give agency, they already have agency, but recognizing the agency of other stakeholders in the community and respecting that agency. But Mayor Williams, do you have a citizens um, uh, grant making committee? A lot of foundations are now setting these up. I assume you guys were right. So like that's that's one very concrete example of where you're like actually sharing power because you're like, here's this pot of money we want you to do the grant making with. We did. I, I'm glad you said that. So we serve 29 towns, and two years ago we established a fund in each of the 29 towns where those towns have a committee. They make their own grant making decisions. Uh, you know, and, and it has been a, it has been a, a wonderful process, both in terms of for us in learning and those communities and understanding our only sort of requirement was that they had a diverse community committee that represented, you know, their their own towns. Uh, and to see some of those towns begin to appreciate and rethink about what diversity means. But yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. So there's 29 of them that we established uh, uh, about two years ago. You know, I was, I'm glad you mentioned that because it reminds me of the the calls for some some degree of participatory bu budgeting with regard to the big stimulus dollars and investments that are that are happening. I'm always, I mean, I know that it's complicated, but it always seems like kind of a small percentage that is offered to to these community boards for participatory budgeting or participatory grant making. And, and I, I get it that it's like a big risk to say like, we're gonna give you 25% or 50%, right? Or turn it, turn it all over. It's more like an experiment in power sharing than it is real power sharing. Jay? Hartford has done that. And, it, and it's an initiative called Hartford Decides. Uh -huh. uh, and, and so I, I credit the community for doing it, but you're right. And, and I'll say uh, as a former mayor, you know, you, you think you, you already have enough battles with your city council about their legislative ability and having the purse strings. So then, you know, as a mayor, you're probably thinking, okay, now I've got city council and I've got another group over here. So will you ever get anything done? That's not to say it's not the right approach with the legislative body. It's a legal requirement. And with these uh, citizens participatory, you get more buy-in. So it is the right thing to do. But I mean, that's where the human nature of, oh man, I've got to now, uh, you know, go go and convince and battle, and will, will the dollars get to where they where I think mm -hmm. they should go? But but it is, and I credit Hart for for having that process. I'm not sure mm -hmm. what the percentage is, but it but it's a process that is very much in place here. Dr. Allison Gould. Yeah, so I was going to share that just last night I helped facilitate a conversation in Mansfield, Ohio, which um, was set up by the Chamber of Commerce, the local foundation, and the local news source, their Richland source. And they invited mayors, commissioners, and city council members. 
and then community leaders and kind of general, you know, average day residents. And we had a conversation about the ARPA dollars. And so I, from Great Ohio's perspective, we were just saying like, here are some parameters you might want to think about the dollars about, but we were asking through the chat throughout the, throughout the event, like, what do you think are the top priorities today? What do you think need to be the top priorities for the ARPA dollars in the future? And this, these were not binding, right? But it was a good temperature check and a good way to then launch those longer term conversations that would be much more participatory. I also want to say that Mansfielders pulled this together in like five weeks, which is just goes to show you how nimble small legacy cities can be, right? Like they are, everyone knows each other. They just like get it done. <laughs> so I mean, that was always one of the assets. I said, I love Cleveland, but that was always one of the digs I'd say at Cleveland is like, listen, I can get a bunch of, I can get the university president and the corporate CEOs in a room at, with a couple of phone calls. So we can move nimbly. We're not as big as Cleveland, not as well known. Uh, but to your point, the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities also has assembled uh, a multifaceted stakeholder group to have a similar conversations about the ARPA dollars uh, here in the state. So that, that's, a, that's a validated approach. Youngstown may be better known than Cleveland. I mean, you guys had a, a Bruce Springsteen song. Um, <laughs> The, uh, this may be the final question we have time for, but it's it's somewhat easy to get investors to invest in the up and coming communities and neighborhoods. How do you get them to think outside the box and invest in neighborhoods of color? Mayor Williams. You know, I think that there are um, uh, multiple cases to be made. In fact, there was a gentleman, Jeff Furrer, who was executive vice, executive vice president of the Boston Federal Reserve Bank, who made a compelling uh, case that in every instance, uh, companies are more profitable, uh, the outcomes are, are are longer lasting when you have an intentional, inclusive, uh, diverse approach to your investment uh, that without fail. And so he made the business case and showed financially uh, why this was uh, you know important and necessary and the detriment when you don't uh, approach it intentionally this way. So alongside that, I mean, there is certainly the the the, case, the, the moral or the social case of the notion of you are just leaving talent and creativity uh, on the sidelines uh, when you don't invest in communities of color. So, I mean, just there are so many ways to come at it, but I thought that was one of the more compelling because while there was a social justice argument that was, you know, uh, indisputable, he tied it very neatly to the financial benefits uh, to, to the broader community and to the corporations uh, by having these investments in 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 our communities of color, Allison Goble, the the report kind of calls that out, that philosophical underpinning as like like this is why we do this, not just because it's the moral thing, but because it it's better for the economy. Yeah, that's right. We spend like a whole chapter outlining and kind of referring to various academic studies, Fed studies, Urban Institute studies that show that you know. Yeah, you're leaving a lot on the table if you are not investing in communities of color and that in fact by um that at this point inequities are just sort of replicating themselves right that they're deepening it instead of and so it's not like these external forces it's sort of at this point self-perpetuating and so breaking that is reaps huge benefits so um yeah mayor williams i'm glad that you've raised that because that is definitely the case right like that there's a financial economic case here in addition to all the like very important social justice and, uh, and moral issues here as well. Dr. Allison Goble runs the Greater Ohio Policy Center, which is kind of at the forefront of this report we've been talking about. Jay Williams is president of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving and former mayor of Youngstown, Ohio, and the former assistant secretary of commerce for economic development. You've disappeared from my screen, but I want to thank you both very much. 
for being a part of this today. I want to thank all of you for joining us. We have talked a lot about the report. It's called Equitably Developing America's Smaller Legacy Cities, Investing in Residents from South Bend, Indiana to Worcester, Massachusetts. And you can find it on the webpage for this event on our website, cityclub.org, or on the Lincoln Institute of Land Policies website at lincolninst.edu. Just click on publications. And while you're there, I want to encourage you to register for the webinar, which is coming up on June 29th, where practitioners will talk about how they've implemented some of these strategies that we've talked about. This forum today is presented by the Lincoln Land Institute for Land Policy and Mansur Gavin, LPA, in honor of the Lincoln Institute's 75th anniversary. We're very grateful for their support. All City Club virtual forums are presented for free every week, thanks to generous support from Bank of America, Key Bank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. You can join them in supporting the City Club's mission by making a contribution online, becoming a member, or texting the word donate to 216-616-CLUB. That's 216-616-2582. And follow a few easy steps to make your donation. We really appreciate it if you would do that. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay close in your hearts, my friends. We will be close in person soon. Public Square this summer. We're counting on it and we cannot wait. So our forum is now adjourned. Thank you very much.